This is the Push Shift Podcast, a raw look at the hospitality industry. What's happening, Push Shifters? Uh, this one is a little bit of a throwback. A couple of years ago, I did a seminar at Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans on creating a uh, cocktail culture in a small city. And I did it with some good friends, Bradford Knudsen and Oren Lerner, who I interviewed a few weeks ago for the podcast. Um, this one, the reason why I sort of wanted to reiterate on this one is, is that it's a important topic and uh and i had someone reach out to me recently and she said that she found it on youtube and listened to it on the way to work so i was like well hell may as well turn it into a podcast and have it for everybody um so i hope that you enjoy it uh, it's a little bit long but uh i hope you uh get a kick thanks bye so i'd like to introduce myself uh my name is sean sewell i uh Obviously, I'm not Canadian per se. Um, I was born and raised in Australia, and I've lived in Canada for about 10 years. Um, I live on the far west coast in Victoria, BC, on the uh, Vancouver Island. I kind of usually like to make fun of myself. Um, I'm a consultant uh, as my job, and uh, the only Canadian to get to a top four position at the Spirited Awards here at Tales. So I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and done a whole bunch of stuff that you guys really don't care about. Um, my next presenter <laughs> is uh, Oren Lerner from Tel Aviv and Israel. Um, Oren, you want to introduce yourself? Um, you just said 90% of it. I'm the owner of a <laughs> bar called The French 57. Uh, by the name, you can probably guess what kind of bar we are. Uh, we're the first in Tel Aviv to do that, and I'm proud to be here. Thank you very much. My next presenter today is you. Bradford Knudsen. Um, uh, grew up in Wisconsin, uh, small town boy my whole life. Uh, I now live in Olympia, Washington. Uh, I've uh, managed uh, bars there for 12 years. Um, most recently worked in a classic cocktail bar called Dillinger's and am now opening up a new bar uh, in an outlying community. Uh, it's a, a steakhouse bar focusing on classic martinis, Manhattans, and Spanish-style gin and tonics. Okay, and our four, our third panelist, who unfortunately can't be here, he passed away in May, uh, March, sorry, early March, is uh, Brendan Taylor. Who's from Canada here? Geez, that's, that's, that's not very many people from Canada. Thanks for the support, Canada. Um, Brendan passed away in uh, May, but I kept him on the panel. He's even got his own name card and everything. So we've got a shot of Fernet. I know it's 10 a.m. in the morning, but everything's going to be better now. So uh, big cheers to Brendo. Thank you very much, buddy. Brendo. Cheers. So let's get down to brass tacks. <clears throat> so this really is a study on small cities. Now, we're going to take a, a relative business aspect about the dynamics of small cities in the seminar. But the big one is, is that really some of the things that we're going to be outlining in the next like 15 slides really should be done. If you're opening a bar in any city, this is the sort of stuff you should be doing before you open a bar. So let's talk about some definitions. So a lot of people have been asking, oh, well, small cities, you must be like, Victoria's 80,000 people. How much is Olympia? Oh, under, it's, yeah. It's like 100 and something. Yeah, it's 150,000, but that includes some outlying communities, so. And then Tel Aviv is what? 400,000. 400,000. Now, people are like, well, that's a big city. But our classification is small city by population or small city by infancy of its culture. So a culture that's approximately five years old with multiple venues. So we're going to be talking about a couple of cities that 
the, the cocktail culture in those cities are very, very fledgling. They're just starting out. There's only a few venues doing it. We've been doing it for 10 years in Victoria, and we've still only got probably three or four cocktail bars that are specifically for cocktail bars. So this is the boring graphy stuff that we, we're going to get through so that we can get to the cool stuff. Like, there's going to be a lot of graphs, like a lot, a lot of graphs. So <clears throat> if you look at this, we're looking at city core burst population, which is a big one because Victoria is very spread out. Victoria is very, very spread out. Um, we got 325,000 people in an area that takes you 45 minutes to drive to the outskirts of the CRD. So public transport comes in. So how dense is your city core compared to the rest of your city population? So this brings up a whole bunch of things, such as your metro area versus population. So you look at density. So look at Tel Aviv, extremely densely populated, whereas Edmonton has a lot of people but it's spread out aggressively. Um, and Manchester's another city. So we're looking at Victoria, Edmonton, and Tel Aviv, and Olympia. Um, not really as uh, those cities in specifics, uh, but much more for um, examples, because no small city is unique in any of their problems to that city only. So. As you can see, total population versus total area. <laughs> Look at Olympia, sorry. <laughs> I should have made that bigger somehow. Yeah. True small town. So if you look at Victoria, it's very spread out. Um, and your average and perception of uh, density is very interesting. The gents of, uh, well, let's go actually to Oren. Oren, uh, Tel Aviv is extremely dense. Tel Aviv is very dense. Uh, it's 400,000 uh, uh, citizens in Tel Aviv alone. But what, what I try to say about that is that small cities is no, not so much a, a result of population versus square kilometers so much as state of mind. Uh, any, even, even a big city that just starts uh, getting cocktail bars open and starts talking about cocktails, drinking cocktails, has cocktail culture in its infancy and shares the same characteristics in many ways with small towns when it comes to finding out about that. So then you have to look at the density of restaurants. Now, if you're in a small city, is there a lot of restaurants? How are you going to dilute the brand in Victoria? Rep said to me um, that I've been behind two out of the three cocktail bars, and every time a new cocktail bar opens up and I'm maybe spearheading it, it sort of cuts the pie again. You're not actually growing a population. You just keep cutting the pie into little, little pieces. Um, Olympia has its own issues too. Yeah, well, you've got uh, horrible public transport. Oh, yeah. Well, the um, public transportation is mostly focused uh, just during the day. Um, so there's no late night bus system, uh, very few cabs, uh, Uber is, we have three cars. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and it's uh, really difficult because there isn't a lot of population in the downtown core. Um, the downtown core is businesses, restaurants, and, um, and so uh, you have to focus a lot of attention on bringing people from those outlying areas into the downtown. Uh, community. Um, more recently, they, we've finally started to build up housing in the downtown area, and it's revitalizing the downtown, which um, for a long time had a high vacancy rate, um, which you can find in, in cities like that, because we're built around water, so it's just a very small area, and then all the housing to the outlying areas. And so finding unique ways to bring people 
and to draw attention to that downtown area instead of just sticking to their, their neighborhoods and making downtown and cocktail culture a focus can, can be very difficult. Um, to get in and out of the city. Yeah. So we've got Manchester and Reykjavik and Edmonton up there. Um, Edmonton is only about two or three years old now. The big thing with Edmonton we're going to talk about in a bit, which is the reason why I really did it, is it's a ton of oil money. There's 20-year-old kids there making $150,000 a year. So cocktail prices and the culture is like blown up because you have these kids come in and they're F-350s and asking for the most expensive drink or the most expensive whiskey and they're just selling tons and tons and tons. Manchester, I use Manchester because I went to Manchester in uh, November last year. I was impressed with the cocktail culture there. Um, but it's very interesting because they've had an issue with as soon as a bartender gets, um, uh, well, I won't say famous, but as soon as a bartender gets some knowledge and some experience to him, he moves to London because it's so close. And then Reykjavik is a very special one. There's a few good cocktail bars in Reykjavik, and it's a very young population, um, but it's the only place to go. It's not like you can go, oh, I'm just going to go to the next town because there isn't another town. It's just Reykjavik. So... They're sort of just examples because I didn't want to make it three obscure cities in the world, Victoria, and have Victoria, Olympia, and Tel Aviv, and go, this is our, uh, this is our setup. So, you go. Oh, just real quick. <laughs> um, these amazing cocktail apprentices, oh, if you, you ever see them out and about, uh, buy them a drink, pat them on the back. They work really hard. I was we'll part punch of Cam Brown. Yeah. He likes that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had, I had the honor of being a cocktail apprentice for two years. I know how hard they work, and um, they do amazing things to make this happen. Right now, they're passing out a uh, geranium gin and tonic uh, using Q-tonic and the geranium gin, um, which I represent uh, fairly. One of your jobs. Yeah, one of my many jobs. Um, the other part of being in a small town is, you know, three jobs and a single father, and uh, <laughs> still struggling to make it down here for tales. Um, but... Uh, yeah. So now we start talking about sex and age. And as you can see, we are talking about things that you should be really looking at. Like Victoria, until five years ago, super, it, we were called the, the city of the newly wed and the nearly dead. So you got young families, retirees. Uh, the weather's ridiculously good there, which is why most of the homeless population from Vancouver and Calgary moved to our city. Um, the weather's always really nice. But the big issue that I find with most cities, especially smaller ones, is that your averages don't normally work out the way that you would think. Like if you're walking around your city and you're seeing uh, younger people and you're seeing industries like tech and that sort of thing moving in, um, you find that uh, it starts changing, but it's still such a small slice of the population because the older population are the ones that make the rules. Like they don't let the kids, the 22-year-old tech startups, uh, make the rules. It's the the 55 year olds who are on the board at the council making the rules about late night and public transport and taxis and Uber and that sort of thing. So you may have a really good population, but unless your, your city can move around late at night, you have to really look at that. Um, I know that Tel Aviv has had a has got really young really quick last little while. Yeah, um, a, a couple of unique things about Tel Aviv. We'll see with the sex and age. It's not very unique. It's not very different. But what I was saying is that we should. Perhaps examine the populations who do go to cocktail bars or are prone to go to your cocktail bar and start developing that culture. So a couple of things that are very unique to Tel Aviv and Israel in general. We're a small country, not only a small city, so you only get big brands, nothing boutique, nothing small batch. Somebody said mezcals, no way, Amaro's, <laughs> what is that? Uh, religion, 
70% of Israelis will keep kosher, and that's one of the strictest regulations for food and drinks. Uh, however, 85% of the population in Tel Aviv are not only not keeping kosher, they're anti-religious and will not by chance, but by decision, choose to eat things that aren't kosher. So you kind of have conflicting issues when it comes to religion. Um, Israel's a huge consumer of vodkas. Every vodka brand is surprised by how much vodka we consume, and I can't explain it myself. <laughs> Pays uh, the bills. What? Pays, Pays the bills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't sleep. Tel Aviv has public transportation 24-7. Uh, bars can close at 8 or 9 a.m. Yeah. It's perfectly acceptable. Uh, a lot of parties are going on all the time. Uh, the number one safety issue in Tel Aviv is DUIs. We get about one fatal car accident a day in the country. Uh, you're not allowed to drink and drive. You will be stopped. There is police. If they catch you, they'll take away your license. But Israelis culturally have a very loose interpretation for regulations and laws. So people will drink and drive in spite of all that. So we don't care. We drive. We want to drink, we'll get there. Um, it's like America. Apparently, this morning I was told that Vegemite's illegal here. Vegemite's illegal? Because apparently an ingredient. That's incredible. I'm like, huh? Vegemite's not allowed to be here? <laughs> Oh, do you? <laughs> and then something like Barocca. Barocca wasn't allowed either. Does anybody know what Barocca is? It's B12, like, effervescence. Apparently the FDA says no to that. Apparently it's bad for you guys, but I can go to Walgreens and pick up a gun. So, I can't go to Walgreens and pick up Barocca, but I can pick up a gun at Walgreens. <laughs> Gotta watch that Barocca, I tell ya. But as you can see, when I came to Victoria in particular, I, uh, I moved there 10 years ago, and the average age, of, the median age in Victoria that 10 years ago was 55 years old. And now it's down to 42, which is still a really old population. Um, we have a lot of issues with that, like a lot of old money and a lot of older people who really do uh, push um, a very conservative sort of old Britain. Has anyone been to Victoria, BC? Yeah? Is it like, is it basically like little Britain? Yeah, a little slice of old town Britain, um, which is just horrible to think. Um, but you were on the flip side in, uh, in Olympia with massive, like way more liberal Everything. Oh yeah, very very liberal city Hippies. core. Um, uh, Evergreen College, uh, just by the name, you can understand. It's you know um, one of the most liberal colleges in the country. Um, a very strong LGBTQ community um, downtown. But there's also uh, in the outlying areas you have um, more conservative rural rural communities. We were located within a half hour of one of the uh, largest military bases in the country. Um, so when you do bring people from the outlying areas, uh, you, there is a tendency for, uh, there can be conflict um, when, you, when you're bringing together people of different religious backgrounds, political backgrounds, uh, different beliefs into, into one small area. Um, so you tend to see uh, different bars and different restaurants that cater to different areas of that uh, community and there's not a lot of crossover between those uh, establishments so really finding um, your niche and trying to draw people from different walks of life into a cocktail establishment um, uh, can be difficult um, so sex is a I, I think it's important we, which we did a run through yesterday and uh, the boys had some sort of different points on sort of women and, and men breakdown in cities 
Um, I wanted to sort of show it at the end of the day, like when we go through, I'm going to flip through all of them because we don't need to look and study every single one. Reykjavik is an interesting one, actually. Um, anyone from Iceland? Hey, boys. <laughs> um, Reykjavik is interesting. You can tell me if this is bullshit. This is a story I got told that uh, the population in Reykjavik, um, you have an app and you type in a girl's name or a boy's name to make sure you're not related. See, they're nodding their heads, they're saying this is true. Because it's such a small island and people don't usually get off. Wrong terminology. Um, <laughs> there's an app for that now. Um, but I was in Reykjavik last year and I had an amazing, amazing time. The city is so ridiculously vibrant for such a small city. It's a much younger population, even though that graph doesn't really show. It's a huge pop uh, young population. And uh, all the bars stay at like 5 o'clock in the morning, yeah? It's, all, it's just really super, super vibrant. They have Iceland airwaves there every uh, November, and I had an absolute blast there, which is why I want to show it. Cocktail culture in uh, Reykjavik started about uh, four or five years ago, from what I can tell, and uh, there's a couple of really good cocktail bars and world classes there now, and all the big competitions you get in Europe are actually making their way to Iceland. Um, Edmonton, you, big, uh, funnily enough, a smaller female population. Again, oil money, lots of guys on the oil rigs. Um, Olympia, a lot more females. You've actually got more females than anyone else on this graph. Yeah, but a strong lesbian population there. <laughs> so that graph means absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so we were chatting about, um, uh, I think the regular normal thinking behind dynamics of a bar that the more female you have in a bar, or you always have to have it balanced. Like you, It has to be balanced so that there's something that draws it. And I always find that in the bars I run, but... Um, I think both of you disagreed with me. What's that? Oh. <laughs> About having like a, a good split of men and women in a bar. Well, it depends on the type of establishment that you're running. You know, um, are you a pickup joint? Uh, as a, um, the cocktail bars that I've worked at, um, a wine bar that uh, started to focus on classic cocktails originally, um, and then just a strict classic 1930s and earlier cocktail bar. Um, it was more of a date place. Um, it wasn't a place where single people came in uh, looking to hook up. So it was um, plenty of dive bars and uh, you know more economic bars to go to for for for, <laughs> the hookup. for the hookup. But then you know then they would come to a nice cocktail bar or, or a nice restaurant to get a good drink and, and have a nice date with uh, with someone. So um, you kind of have to look at the dynamics of your population. Um, and, and what they're looking for in a cocktail establishment, whereas, uh, you know, um, it was completely different uh, yeah, for you. Yeah, I'm trying to show a cultural difference here um, without scaring off any of you to come and visit Tel Aviv. Uh, but we're a very, originally, we we're a very gender tradition-oriented, like very male chauvinistic uh, uh, society in, in, in its drinking habits. So. When it comes to cocktail bars, because cocktail bars are much more restaurant-oriented, people will sit and they'll discuss the ingredients or the appearance of the drink and the glassware. It's a much more high-level, detailed experience, and we're all very experienced consumer, consumerism-oriented. So you get a lot more uh, uh, females, a lot more women come into cocktail bars. Uh, and you'd think that if you have 70 or 80% women in your bar, it'll attract the men. But a lot of guys in Tel Aviv feel intimidated by asking a cocktail. Like I've had uh, one, one example I actually wrote here. We had a small TV show at the bar 
and the guy turns to the girl and he, they're, like, they're reviewing the bar, the guy turns to the girl and says, I think there's no manly way to ask for a cocktail. And she replies, ooga booga beer. <laughs> What's ooga booga beer? You say, just make ooga booga beer. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish you brought that up yesterday because I probably would have told you not to say that. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm glad he did. <laughs> So when you think about it, like, that's a basic breakdown. Now, not, I don't want to get too much into this because it's really just the, the crutch of uh, business in small cities. It's when you work in a small city, and we'll, we'll get into this in a moment, you really need to look at every single detail that it needs to create a cocktail bar that's going to be sustainable. So if the average population of all the cities we looked at this morning is 1.5 million, that's 16,000 extra females in that market. So I think it's important because... I don't like walking into a bar when it's all dudes. Like, I don't want to go have a cocktail bar when it's just all dudes. This, not that I'm, I'm married and I have a kid and stuff, but I like that balance. I find the balance with my staff. I find the balance in, the, in a room. It gives a different vibe, and that's what you're looking for, ambience and vibe. So, but moving on to the fun part. So this is Bob. So we're going we're gonna to see a lot of Bob in this seminar. He just found a cocktail shaker. So he's wondering what he's going to do with that cocktail shaker. So the real reason is why. Why do we want to have a cocktail culture in our city? Obviously, the internet has made the world a little bit smaller. Um, for me, uh, I came from Australia, obviously, and uh, Australia's cocktail culture is very vibrant. We don't have big cities, but we're, we're sort of a very competitive nation. nation, nation. And even though we're, we're friends with the bar down the road, we like to compete with them. We're always trying to, we're always trying to be the better, the better person. So it's always very competitive. When I moved to Victoria, however, um, there was no cocktail culture. Before Solomon's opened, what year was that, Sol? Uh, 2008. 2008, there literally was no way you could get a decent Manhattan in Victoria. So 2008 is when we started our cocktail culture. And just wanting to be better. Um, there was a massive gap in the industry. More people were getting interested in it. 2009 was our first cocktail uh, weekend event. Um, and we sort of... We saw a massive call for it. People were really, really looking at getting a good cocktail and enjoying a good drink. And then the internet has really shrunk the world down. Like when I started in the industry almost 20 years ago, uh, you had to read books. There was no drink boy or like you didn't have smartphones. You couldn't like just Google something and find a cocktail recipe. If you had to find a cocktail recipe, you were going to a bookstore and getting a book or going to the library and taking notes. Um, and so there's always going to be detractors in, uh, in this why. Um, and it is a hard road, but uh, you have an evil plan, don't you? Hmm. <laughs> I'm saying it wasn't an evil plan. Um, I don't think we set out to make, a, to build a cocktail culture. I don't think either of us woke up one day and said, I'm going to lead my people on to drinking <laughs> Manhattan's old fashioned. You That's what Solomon of, did. He had yeah, an evil well, plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mastermind. Uh, you just do what you like. I mean, you work behind the bar and you like cocktails. And if, if the bartender likes cocktails, then his guests will drink more and more of them. And it sort of builds on. But if, if your culture is, if, if your city is receptive to it, if you're in the right spot in terms of uh, receptive to new things, new experiences, uh, have positive views on liquor consumption, on cocktails, on luxury, then it'll happen. It'll just, it, it'll break like a, like a plate. 
We just wanted we, we, we wanted to give something more than just highballs. Right. Did you did you do the cap before you were a cocktail bartender or about cocktail no, bartender no, before you were a cap? I, um, I've been uh, working uh, to bring uh, to create a cocktail culture in Olympia for over 12 years, um, and it really wasn't a matter of why or why not. It was um, as a single father uh, creating a career for myself where I could still be a dad and be around for my son. Is how it originated. And then uh, through reading books, and Gaz Reagan, uh, Joy of Mixology was one of my first Bibles. Um, there you go. Uh, I just found a passion in it and wanted to share that and uh, really went out of my way to, um, uh, and, uh, and it was a big fight with uh, owners and everything else to start creating a cocktail culture and, um, and uh, sharing that with other bartenders because I wanted to be able to go someplace besides where I worked and have a good drink. And um, so that, you know, that gets into building community, which yeah. we're going to talk about in a little and bit. And when I say it's a hard road, and uh, when, I was, when I first took over Clive's in the Shadow Victoria, I remember um, it was ju just after I put my first cocktail menu out, and on a Saturday night by myself, no servers, one chef in the back, I would bring out $120 and do a 12-hour shift. <laughs> That's how many people were coming for cocktails. I remember Solomon's uh, was the same thing. You'd have great nights and then you'd be dead. Um, so it's a hard road because you, you've always got to be working it. It's always the angles. So a big thing I always say is that I read this book recently, um, and this whole, this whole section here is getting a mentor. Um, I would say my mentor would be uh, Philip Duff. He's been on my back about five years to read this book. Please read it. Um, or get the audio book, so when you're walking and stuff, you can listen to it. It'll change the way you talk to your managers, to your owners, to your clients, to anyone. I always say get a mentor internationally or locally, so or and locally, I mean. So if I have something, a business proposition or something like that, that I need to talk to someone about, I've got Philip Duff that I can call and have a chat to. And then locally, I've got Solomon. Sorry, that's Solomon Siegel over there, everybody. He uh, basically started a cocktail culture in Victoria. So uh, Sol's my mentor in town. So if I find something or do something, funnily enough, he has a spreadsheet on his computer now called uh, Sean's New Venture hmm. spreadsheet. And so whenever I find a place that I think would be good for a cocktail bar, he's like, how many seats, how much is the rent? And is that triple nets included? And he types it into his spreadsheet. He's like, you need to do 150 people at 20 bucks a head, seven days a week to break even. So I honestly think he's conspiring with my wife so I don't open another place. And he just tells me it can't be done. <laughs> Um, your mentors. Well, you were one of my first, Jesus. honestly. Um, and uh, through our, that first start of the cocktail in 2009, and where I also met Charlotte Boise and Philip Duff. And, um, you know, uh, it's not e always easy to find a mentor within your community, which um, the beauty of events like this and like that, uh, you know, don't be afraid to go introduce yourself to those people whose books you've read and whose seminars you've gone to, and they want to help you out. They want to be a part of helping to create these communities for you, um, which is, you know, why we're here. And uh, so um, please don't be afraid and, and go up and talk to them and ask them questions. They want to share that information with you, and uh, the reason we're all here is to help create better uh, drinking communities for, for all of us. And so. And on the flip side of that, Oren, unfortunately, you really 
don't have anyone local that you can um, like lean upon. No, Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv is in, entirely in its infancy, but I'm lucky enough to know a couple of international figures. Uh, one, one such memory that comes by is when we started aging uh, uh, cocktails in barrels, and we just contacted Sean Saul. He woke up at 5 a.m. to do a Skype in Israel because we're reverse hours, and we just, for, for 45 minutes, we were talking about how to do that and when to do that. He said, age Toronto's, and we're aging Toronto's ever since, so. Everyone knows what Toronto is, right? Not the city, the cocktail. Everybody like Toronto's? Toronto's are delicious. Mm -hmm. So, but honestly, getting more. It, uh, we'll be talking about it more and more because the big thing with getting the ball rolling and getting your cocktail culture started is like, you, you can be a super creative bartender and have all these wonderful ideas and bring them to your manager or bring them to your owner. And you need to be realistic because what do you want to do and achieve as the bartender um, to do your cocktails. You want it to give that height and level of experience and to make people enjoy coming to your bar for cocktails. What does the owner want? Money. What does the manager want? Money. So how do you align your goals with the owner's and manager's goals? And this is the big thing that sometimes bartenders, I feel, miss because doing costing sheets is the boring shit. Costing sheets and inventory and money and, and figures and all this stuff is the really boring stuff. That's why managers and owners do it. We're the creative people. We do all the cool stuff and light shit on fire. Um, but you've got to figure out, because how many times have you gone to your manager with a new menu and gone, I think we should do this? And he's like, no freaking way. Because regular mentality is that cocktails are expensive, they're hard to make, they're labor intensive, so on and so forth. So you need to try and break down those walls to make your owners and managers want to put them on. Because at the end of the day, if you bring a menu to them and they're like, hell no, you're gonna get frustrated, they don't care, so then you get that turnover where people go, well, I'm gonna go to a bar that lets me do it. And eventually, they won't do, let you do it. And then you move on to another bar. So aligning those goals and getting your manager and owner behind the idea. Trust me, me getting uh, cocktails on at Clive's, and I took over Clive's just before Solomon's uh, shut up shop. Um, and so of course you have the only decent cocktail bar in town close and then you're going to your managers and owners and going, hey, so cocktails. And they're like, are you insane? No, bugger off. So what is uh, the sort of uh, issues you guys have had when it comes to getting menus? Well, you and your own bar. Yeah. Like, and you were saying that in Tel Aviv that most of the bartenders are also the owners. We were talking about that. We don't have that issue with getting a sponsor financing the bar. We, we actually scan through the cocktail bars in Tel Aviv. And for the most part, they're owned by the bartenders working behind the bar, or who used to work behind the bar. So you don't have to convince anybody uh, on the upside. You just guys do just cool shit. Pretty much. But on, on the downside, you're, none of us really know business until you open a bar, so the opening is very difficult, and for the most part, you're, kind of, you're probably losing money at first until you learn how to price it. Uh, before, three years ago, there was one cocktail bar in, in Tel Aviv. Four years ago, there were none, and four years ago, if I'd had a conversation with the bar owner to bring in like, a cocktail menu from the outside, I'd get explained that cocktails are a relic of the past, they only work in weddings and bar mitzvahs, they're not relevant to the bars anymore, uh, I want to go to a bar mitzvah where they're making cocktails. They, they do, but, <laughs> they do, but the, the stories are hideous. Uh, don't get me started. 
Um, <laughs> but what what I did to get it to get it rolling in, in, in Tel Aviv was actually do cocktail pop-ups. Mm -hmm. I take a bar for one day and serve a special menu that in, in, in which case I had total freedom to serve whatever I believed in, whatever I wanted. It could be classics, it could be high quality uh, uh, cocktails, high quality ingredients. And that sort of, sort of got the ball rolling until we had the opportunity to open a cocktail only bar uh, where there would, we had to have no beer, no wine, no soft drinks, nothing, just cocktails because otherwise the guests will automatically go to their comfort zone and ask for something that isn't a cocktail. Uh, uh, the, the, the beauty is that the pop-ups put me in a position where I had a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge how to work a busy night in a cocktail bar. Mm -hmm. So when the bar opened, I was at the right spot to help it turn to the right path, and we immediately made, made it the, like, the best bar in, in, in the city. There's 20 bars now? 20 uh -huh. cocktail bars in Tel Aviv now? About? Uh, today, there's about 20 cocktail bars, yeah. Wow. That's what I said, plague. <laughs> so when I say do a menu, it goes back. Now, doing a menu is not scribbling down notes and and that sort of thing and giving it to your manager. Doing a menu is taking the time to do almost like a presentation because you're presenting your proposal to him. So that's menu layout, recipes, prep recipes, costing sheets. Everyone knows how to do costing sheets, right? If you don't, please learn. Because it saves me when I'm consulting to have to come into a restaurant that's been open six months and then realize they don't have costing sheets. Um, and bring it all to your manager because if, you sh if you're showing that you can make what your budgeted cost is on all the cocktails, then they're more likely to say yes. If you br bring a handwritten piece of paper to your manager, unless it's Oren, um, he's gonna throw it away. <laughs> so really the next one is building on the classics. Now, it's something I, I, I truly, truly live by, is creativity doesn't build a cocktail culture, consistency does. Creativity doesn't build it. Someone wants to go into your bar and build on, and go to your bar and have the same cocktail every time from different bartenders, same glassware, same specs, everything. And it's funny how people don't really realize that consistency is such an important aspect of the game. Um, the reason why franchises are so big, because you can go anywhere in the country and you're still gonna get a cheeseburger that tastes exactly the same as the cheeseburger you had in California, in New York. Plain and simple. Um, you're, you're still pretty heavy, uh, you're still pretty heavy uh, classic based, yeah? Very, very much so, and um, I think I, it's also goes back to what we were talking about just a minute ago, um, you know. Uh, oh, thank you. In, in trying to encourage your owners and in in your establishment to uh, bring in cocktails. Um, and classics are a great way to start that. And whether or not they're going to allow you to give them a menu and change a menu or um, work more organically like I've had to do just by sneaking in drink specials and becoming that bartender where people know they could come to you for an Old Fashioned or a Manhattan. And, um, and once that was established within that, that the other bartenders within that establishment were going to make that same drink the same way every time. Um, and the classics are a great way to bring cocktails into the culture. Um, because that, the work and the creativity has already been done, the balance has been created, if you're doing classics and doing it right and doing it consistently, um, you are able to show the owners of your establishment that this is something that works and people come back because they are getting that good drink the same way every time. So this is the first menu I did at Clive's. As, can everybody see that in the back okay? Oh, Sean, real quick. 
Oh, um, yes, sorry, yes, please. Uh, and one of the very first classics I put on a menu was a Martinez, um, which, uh, you know, talk to David Wondrich and the, the history of the martini, but uh, there are many who think that this is kind of one of the original martinis with, uh, with gin and sweet vermouth and bitters. Um, uh, we're doing it with the Old English, which is a 1783 recipe, uh, original English recipe that the English stole from the Dutch that was found in an old safe in a distillery in London. It's made on the oldest uh, pot still in London, England. Um, uh, slightly sweetened, like they did in the late 1700s. Um, great classic to start out with, uh, and very easy to make, and very easy to do consistently with a number of bartenders, so enjoy. So can everybody see that relatively okay? It's not really a great picture, unfortunately. But as you can see, this is my first menu that I did at, uh, at Clive's, and it's definitely, as you can see, very, very, very classic heavy. Um, because before that, it was extremely hard to get cocktails that people even knew about. But this is a big one, pricing. Um, for me, I went to uh, Halifax um, about five years ago. And Halifax is another small city just starting out. Went then, I was paying $14 for an old fashioned in, a, in one of the only cocktail bars in Halifax. And this was six years ago, I think. And so you're paying $14 as Vancouver prices in a city that has the same amount of people as Victoria. And I think around that time, um, we were probably sitting at like $10 to $12 in Victoria was the average cocktail price. And I was blown away because like Oren was saying about everybody goes back to their comfort zone, the lowest common denominator, you have cocktails are always seen as expensive because of the labor, ingredients, that sort of thing. Always seen as expensive. So people stay away from them. You've almost got to introduce them and take a hit when it starts coming uh, to creating something like that. And um, I'm going to flick forward. As you can see, that's the prices on one, the second menu I did at uh, Clive's. Eight and nine dollars. Wish I could get cocktails for $89 these days. Um, but not competing with big city cocktails. Your you're pricing is still quite aggressive in, in yeah, the, yeah, Oregon, you know, uh, um, Olympia. It is, uh, but uh, we've found a good balance. Um, happy hours uh, can be a great way to uh, introduce uh, uh, a community to cocktails and get your establishment on board. Um, uh, and I found that if you have a really well-priced happy hour, um, once people are in the door and drinking, and then you know you go to your regular pricing, mm -hmm. which can be you know, ten, twelve, fourteen dollars, um, people are happy to pay it because they came in and got that good deal, had a good time, um, enjoyed it, and decided it was worth it to stay. And so that's a really good way to uh, incorporate both types of pricing. And um, We've only just been allowed to do happy hours now in BC, like right. last year. We weren't allowed to have happy hours before that. And Which, then you were saying your, your bar does 50% of its total sales? In, in Tel Aviv in general, uh, the, the happy hour is as much as 50% of your income. It's a, it's a major part of, of how you're working. Well, we've, when we started with our menus, we were very classic heavy, but it's not because that was where we were aiming so much as the, the first menus were 12 cocktails, just starting. We are just finding out what we want to have on the menu. And the guest would sit down, and he would have, in two or three sessions, he'd finish up through the entire menu, and he'd say, all right, I want to have something more. Excite me. At the beginning, it meant that the bartender had to learn a lot of classics and serve a lot of classics because that's the easiest way to serve something that's balanced mm -hmm. without making a lot of experiments before that. But um, 
Nowadays, it gets to the point where even the classics are already being done through, and the bars are focusing on their modern creations and kind of losing that focus on, on classics. But when it comes to pricing, I think what's, what's really important to discuss in terms of culture is actually it's value for money. Like the, the, uh, are, are the bartenders starting to examine the quality of ingredients going into the, the, the cocktail? Are the techniques behind making the cocktail being examined, being tested, being uh, uh, compared? If you make a $14 Sazerac with a poor rye or a $14 Sazerac with a good rye, that's, that's really where the difference is culturally. How old is this menu that we've got up on the slide? Uh, this one came out a year ago. Okay, so it's yeah. not too old. And what's uh, the sort of exchange rate right now for that pricing? Um, well, the, nowadays these cocktails will cost you about anything between twelve and fourteen dollars. Uh, when we when I started with the pop-ups, we had a fixed price for seven dollars a drink, no matter what's in it, uh, which doesn't make a lot of profit. It's just about enough to buy a burger on the way home. Um, <laughs> Uh, nowadays, it's $14, and we're not the most expensive. We're actually one of the more uh, approachable uh, cocktail bars in Tel Aviv. Some bars will go to $20, $25. But again, $20, $25 for something that doesn't have, if you, if you know the ingredients, ingredients, it doesn't have value for money, then that's, that's culture in its infancy. So, for, yeah, for me, I, I got a note here that says, I always run by a rule that, which would you prefer, two $9 cocktails? Someone drink two $9 cocktails or one $12 cocktail? So... Um, cocktail pricing in Vancouver and Toronto is a couple bucks more expensive than Victoria. Victoria's we're sitting, I'd say, around eleven to fifteen, depend like at our really good cocktail culture uh, inspired places. But uh, yeah, do you want people to have two drinks at slightly lower, like uh, gross profit, or do you want to have one drink at slightly higher gross profit? So that gets us into more graphs. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought that I didn't have any more graphs and then I realized I have a whole section of graphs. Um, I promise this is the last lot of graphs. But this is something, again, we're going back to the business thinking of this. Um, as you can tell, we haven't really talked about creativity too much. We haven't talked about uh, anything sort of further. We've really been talking about the business and the nuts and bolts of this. Now, averages are always hard because you're always going to have the extremely rich and the very poor. And so, averages are extremely difficult to uh, run. This doesn't inc include rent, because rent and mortgages and that sort of thing is extremely hard to sort of quantify to a degree. Um, Victoria is an extremely expensive place. If anybody's been looking at the papers and seeing what goes for like $3 million in Vancouver right now, it's like a demolishable house from the 50s, will actually go for $3.2 million. So, Victoria's, Victoria's getting the same sort of way. Um, so when you're creating a cocktail culture and you're starting to think, okay, well, it's time to open a cocktail bar. Are people receptive to this? You might have people who are really great and you might have 10 of your mates or 10 of your regulars say, oh, I love your cocktails. Why don't you open a cocktail bar? Those 10 people, I'm going to keep the lights on. <laughs> so um, you've got to really look at the, uh, your average income versus your living expenses. As you can see from Edmonton, we keep bringing up Edmonton and we're going to keep bringing up Edmonton. Um, tons of oil money. Everybody's talking about the, the oil issues that we're having in, in Calgary right now. But... They're saying, oh, well, people are making less money and all this sort of stuff. We're talking about 22-year-old kids who can't buy an F-350 this year. They're going to buy an F-250 and mix the heated seats in the front or sell one of their Sea-Doo's. And there's literally no water in Calgary, so I have no idea why they have Sea-Doo's anyway. <laughs> um, so then you can start looking now. This is income versus expense versus cocktail price. I can look at everybody's face and they're just so bored with these freaking graphs. I promise this is the very last slide. So as you can see, you want to have this sort of um, 
progression of a simple, easy down. Like you look at Tel Aviv, and we were talking about uh, how much money people can make, how much it costs to live there, and then people still are willing to go out and have cocktails. Yeah, this, this, this graph doesn't make sense because people allegedly spend more money than they actually have. It shouldn't be sustainable. At one point, they'll just run out of money and start buying it. But because the cocktail is, is so much uh, uh, experience-oriented, it's, it's not a bought product. It's not IKEA culture where you take it home. You just experience it at the place. And the more emotional the experience is, the more money you're willing to spend on it. And Tel Aviv is a very experienced consumerism, very luxury uh, uh, market. Then that's exactly what you get. You get uh, it's, it's called a cocktail trend, and that's that. Well, and it's touching on experience. I think it's really important. It's not just about creating a nice drink. It's about creating experience and uh, at the core of hospitality. Um, you're going to get people talking about your establishment. If you're creating more than just a cocktail, that you're bringing them in and creating an experience around it and talking about it. And again, I go back to classics a lot, but you can talk about the history and talk about how these drinks came about and who created them and where it came from. Um, or doing uh, friends menus was another way that I was able to incorporate and, and talk about things by putting a drink from Sean on a menu in Olympia, Washington. Or, um, you we know. We do homage cocktail Fridays yeah. at Clive's. Yeah, and it's a great way to get people excited and talking. Um, versus, versus, you know, so it's more about the experience than the drink itself. And it's not about you showing off, it's about you creating an experience for them. So yeah, like when we start talking about like cocktail price, we have to talk about the ramifications of having expensive drinks as well, because do you want people to come to your bar two times a week? Like maybe a drink after work and then a Friday night session? Or do you want people to come once a month because it's a special occasion? Like how many people have seen in their, in their respective cities uh, really old school, fine dining, white tablecloth sort of restaurants starting to slowly wane and disappear because it's that special occasion place. You know, but now the demographic that has the money and has disposable income, we're having kids a lot later in life. Uh, we're not buying houses, we're renting condos or living in micro homes, trailers. Um, I like micro homes and all the, like, all the, everybody's like, all the hipsters are like, oh, I've got a micro home. I mean, you mean a trailer? <laughs> no, 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 it's a micro home. I'm like, is it on wheels? It's a fucking trailer. Um, <laughs> Yeah, lots of those in Olympia. I, I, I can go any. I can, I can take it anywhere. I'm like, why? Because it has a jacuzzi. You think it's not a trailer? It's a freaking trailer. And you pay three times more than a regular trailer for. Oh, that's the Martinez. That's the Martinez. So now we get to it. Education, seminars, and tastings. Now this is something that's near and dear to me. Um, I think. We're, we're all at tail, so we're all here to learn, not to here to drink copious amounts of alcohol at all the tasting rooms and parties that are going on. We're here to learn. <laughs> Seminars and tastings uh, for your respective bars and restaurants is very important, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Not just the industry. Industry, training the industry is great. You get more people on board, everybody's excited, that sort of thing. But the general public, if you include your clientele in sitting down with, say, John Hall from Forty Creek, or Tom Bullitt, or that's Michael Delafont from uh, Appleton. That's the industry seminar. What we actually would do at, at Clive's is do an industry seminar during the day, flip the room, and do a general public seminar at night. So all of a sudden, you're getting this uh, massive loyalty from your clientele. They feel like they're part of your industry. They're like rubbing shoulders. And uh, the education side of things has built Victoria's cultural culture into what it is. 
Um, but you both have massive issues with getting bartenders interested in getting educated. Well, yeah, it's um, you know a small community, uh, and I, you know I don't know where you're all from, but it's not easy to bring in Tom Bullet to Olympia, Washington, to do a tasting. That's a defeatist um, attitude. <laughs> doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I mean, we do have the unique, uh, we're right between Portland and Seattle, so we do get some brand ambassadors coming through and uh, able to bring them in to do some events, but that's not going to be the case for everybody. That shouldn't stop you from doing that yourself. Um, you know, uh, I've done educational seminars and everything else, but how I started it was from an event here at Tails, uh, Bartender's Breakfast. So getting to know the bartenders at the other bars in your community and we all get done at 2 in the morning or 8 in the morning, depending on what city you're from. But you're usually getting done with a shift around the same time, going home, having your first meal of the day after being on your feet for 10 hours. Why not share that experience with other bartenders in your community? And then you bring them into your home, uh, make some nice food, have a good cocktail, and, and, and talk about your day and unwind. And that's a good way to start doing events. And then, and then you can start to create, well, let's, you know, let's have a seminar and, and just bring the bartenders in and then, like you said, have one for the public later on in the evening and talk about gin cocktails. Who does industry seminars at their place of business? Yeah, we get, you get brand ambassadors in, you sit down and do tasting and stuff. Who does them for general public? Yeah, and you find that the response is really good, that people feel like they're connected to the industry to a certain degree? Um, we're going to talk about the Shark Tank that is Tel Aviv. Right. Um, uh, nowadays, with the with the increase of, of bars in Tel Aviv, the, the people who are bringing in the the experts from the outside are mostly the importers, mostly the companies that have uh, big bucks. But the beautiful thing about that is the bartenders have become sort of immune to marketing-oriented seminars in many ways. Uh, they just wouldn't show up because they already know the the. the the content of the seminar, if it's just going to be pushing the brand down our throat, we're okay with, with skipping it. But now they kind of don't know when it's going to be a marketing-oriented talk, when it's going to be something personal. Like I can, I can name a couple of beautiful seminars we've had, a couple of beautiful chats that we've had. Uh, Danny Renan, for example, has been remembered for always coming in and, and just being given free stay, open stage to talk about whatever you want. Part of the issue with the importers and the bars is that we're having a rising tide, but instead of it being lifting all boats, uh, it feels like a shark tank where the rising tide just brings on the bites. The bartenders <laughs> who are owners are sort of competing one with the other rather than sharing the credit. And it's all about me, hoarding, me, 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 me. hoarding international ties, hoarding uh, international connections, bringing in, showing who's, who's bigger and who's stronger. If you'd get, if you'd get a, a, like a, uh, an industry person coming in and you want to have him talk to everybody, you might try to prevent him from actually visiting other bars or seeing other parts of the city so he'll stay in your bar and visit only you. So yeah, and that's the thing is like when getting bartenders on board, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, but uh, getting your general public on board for education, I think is the biggest thing because now when we do a cocktail competition in Victoria, it is packed to the roughs. We have 100 people sit down and only I say 30 of them, 40 of them are industry. The rest is general public, and they're all cheering for the, the cocktail competition. We pack out Clive's. We did two cocktail competitions in a week, and both, both times we packed out people sitting on the floor drinking the featured cocktail while they're watching the competition. So our following in Victoria is um, extremely good. Um, and when we're talking about population, we have great clientele in Victoria. Um, we just don't have enough of them. We have 80,000 people, so you look at saturations. But 
when we're staying out, social media is really, really big. Um, who's a big social media like the kids these days? Everybody's on social media, tweeting, Instagramming, and doing those things. Um, when we started off at Clive's, it's almost like cyber touching tables where when you're walking home, like I used to do this, when you're walking home, you're literally thanking people for coming in because they tweeted about you. And it's, it's sort of like, even though I've got stomped behind the bar and the person who tweeted was at the table th four hours before we finished, you can still say thank you very much for coming in. I've taken food orders off Twitter. I've had a regular tweet me saying, I'm just getting out of a show. I know the kitchen closes in like 10 minutes. Can I, I order a steak? And I check my phone. I know it's horrible, and I tell my staff not to check my phone, not to check their phones. But I'm doing it for work, so do as I say, not as I do. Um, and so I put his order in, and he shows up, and the steak's ready to go. He's got a drink in front of him, and he's good to go. So two really good guys that do a lot of uh, social media is Arthur Wynn from the McKenzie Room in uh, Vancouver, and then Andrew Friedman at Liberty and Good Citizen in Seattle. He's for, ba for bad or worse, he's actually pretty good at social media. Um, some people hate him on social media. Um, everybody knows Andrew Freeman, yeah? Who hates him, who likes him? <laughs> Andrew's not in here right now. Donnie, don't tell him I said that. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that because we're trying to get a saturation point, when we're talking about a small population, we'd like to try and hit a 10%. I'm, I'm just pulling a number out of my ass here. But I'm trying to find a, a number where you're like, okay, well, if I hit 10% saturation, which means... 10% of my total population is cocktail savvy. If I can hit that, then I'm in a good stead. Like I, I, can, I can open a bar and it's gonna be good. So you have to be always on the platforms. I only just got Instagram recently, which is really odd for me. Um, and you've gotta focus on not just what you're doing, your bar, your cocktails, but also what the whole city's doing. So retweeting um, what the rest of the city is doing is very important because it builds your team and your community. Um, so what are, the bar, what are the motivators for bartenders to do more? Money. Really, at the end of the day. For them to, like, and I'm not talking about people who are already cocktail creative. Like, what if you walk into a bar, you've taken it over, the owner has hired you as the bar manager to get cocktails going, you've been hired as a consultant or something like that. How do you get the bartenders who have worked at that bar? I've done unionized hotel bars. If anyone consults on unionized hotel bars, you know what I'm talking about when it says to try and get people motivated when you're making $25, $28 an hour plus tips. It's not really any motivation to actually work harder because I've got a job that's 50 years old. Um, and so that's how you do it. And again, going back to that book, getting more. How do you align your goals? You want the bartenders to make better cocktails because that's what you're getting paid for. And what do they want? They want more money and less work. Um, your team and community, how many bartenders are making cocktails in Olympia the way you do? Uh, very few, um, you know, but it, it has increased and, and uh, a big part of that is um, uh, moving beyond yourself to the people around you to make, um, to make them want to create that experience as well. Um, uh, putting aside your ego and, and bringing other bartenders in and helping them to uh, get excited. I'm too and good to have an ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, it's not, it's, it's not always easy, you know, because it is, it is a tip-oriented society, and, you know, and you are the show. And, um, but uh, 
you help yourself by helping your community and helping the other bartenders around you do better because that's going to create more customers. And, that's, um, and that, that comes into pressuring bartenders. Like bartenders are normally very flaky. There's always some reason why you can't go to a seminar in the middle of the day, whether it be work, family, whatever. So chasing bartenders, like I drop mass texts, like seminar, one o'clock today, come. Um, whereas in uh, Tel Aviv, you were saying, Oren, that uh, it's not really about money at all. It's just about being the status of a cocktail bartender. Because of the blooming state of the cocktail bars in Tel Aviv, it's like a, a status now. It's, uh, uh, there's a mixologist fashion going around where they'd walk around even on their days off looking very well dressed up with all the little details and accessories uh, done. Bartenders will give up high paying jobs in order to work at bars that serve cocktails. Bartenders who are already very experienced will come in to be barbacks at cocktail bars in order to learn or to share some of that uh, uh, fame that, that uh, cocktail bartenders are getting. Um, so what motivates bartenders in Tel Aviv right now is, is the image of becoming a cocktail bartender, of leading it. They might not actually go through the entire hard work of learning all the recipes or actually doing everything. It might be just for show. Uh, we call it, uh, the, the, there's a term in, in Tai Chi called chao tzu, to describe somebody who studies Tai Chi by the, by the images rather than reads the book. And that's kind of how it feels in Tel Aviv right now. You get a lot of young bartenders who dress the part and will make the show, but essentially will give you something that just isn't balanced. So we're talking about finality in the bit, finality in the beginning. Who, from everybody who said they were from a small city, who sees the cocktail culture progressing pretty well in their city? Pretty good. Everybody in the U.S. have you, everybody in the U.S. We got other people from Europe and whatnot here. Yeah. So it's hard work. It's huge amounts of work. You have to work twice as hard to prove you're half as good. In Victoria, we've had a great cocktail culture for 10 years, and we still have to work twice as hard to prove we're half as good. Um, I still have journalists come to Victoria, and they're like, oh, we, we sort of heard that it was good food, and redfish, bluefish, and all the touristy sort of places. And uh, they're like, oh, but we can't get a good cocktail. I'm like, are you, are you shitting me? Like, you can go there, see those three guys. Go there, see those three guys. Go there, see those three guys. Um, but when you think you're done, uh, you always have to work harder and longer, unfortunately. There's no, there's no time, like... I wish I could stop working as much as I do um, to keep pushing it, but it just keeps going and going. Now the ball's rolling. So this is Bob. Bob's got a job at a bar. Pouring whiskey. It's shaved. He looks a little still pro magnum man a little bit. So um, we're going back into seminars and training. So now we're talking about dropping big dollars into big big names. So as Ron was saying later, you've had Donnie's done a seminar with you. Mm -hmm. Philip Duff. We, we found out that it's much more effective to bring in somebody of the bar's budget uh, than actually have an importer or a brand pay for it because once the brand pays for it, the turnout for, for people participating is minimal. Uh, however, when it's from the bar's budget, then it's literally a zero visit. It has to be somebody who's friendly, who wants to join in, share in, and it might just happen to be in Israel and is happy to take the podium. So yeah, we've had Danny Renan, we've had Philip Duff visit us. Uh, the most memorable uh, seminars I can think of, apart from those two, were uh, either Adam Almagira, uh, Ian Burrell, people who came in of their own accord uh, and just, just did what they like to do. Sweet. Sounds awesome. Um, Big names lead to notoriety. The more people you have come through your place of uh, international stature, the more people know about it. And 
you can drop serious money into advertising and marketing and PR, but you don't know what your ROI on that's going to be. How long it's going to take, you can put ads in every single paper, but are you busy because of the ads or are you just busy because something happened? When you drop money into, say, these guys, um, you know that when you get a full room, it's because these guys have come. When they do a seminar and your general public show up and your industry show up, you know it's because these guys have come. You've got an automatic return on your investment. And the big thing is, is that how hard is it to get people to Olympia? Um, it is, it's, it's really difficult. But um, again, in a unique situation, being between Portland and Seattle, uh, paying attention to the events in those cities and trying to encourage those people to make a stop through on their way through uh, between the big cities. Um, is one way to do it. It's a little, little Facebook stalking. Yeah. So you're like, oh, yeah. hey, you're in Seattle. Can <laughs> you pop down? It I is. did that with Angus. Yeah. I shit you not, Angus is, was in Seattle. Diageo didn't even know about him coming up. And uh, he's like, I'm in Seattle. I got like four days to kill. How about I come up and do some stuff with you? I'm like, I'm not going to say no. Right. Like, no, you know what? I'm busy this week. Sorry. <laughs> and, he, and he gave me five days, five days notice to do a full seminar general public and industry and a pop-up. Wow. So, but the other, th real quick, the other thing you can do is, um, I've also organized road trips to go to seminars in Portland or Seattle um, with, with oh, bartenders cool. in your community. And, um, and then once you've done that and introduced your community to them in a bigger city, they're more likely to want to come and see you because they see the passion and the excitement um, that a young community can bring. Um, so, you know, if you have the advantage of being close to a major city where some of these events are happening, take advantage of it. Get, get a bus, get a van. Yep, you know, rent a van. Get, you know, try and get the owner of your establishment to pay for, you know, uh, the rental van and, and, and take people out for a day trip. And now, the big, the big return I, I see on these sort of people, everybody's heard of the Spirited Awards, everybody's heard of World's Best 50 Bars, that sort of thing. And you always hear every spirit was like, oh, it's only London or it's only New York or it's only San Francisco. The people, I'm on a couple of the panels, and, and the people that vote for these things actually physically have to have been to your bar and it's getting more and more strict this year. Uh, 50 best bars were last 18 months, no guest bartenders were working there that night you, you visited, um, so on and so forth. So if you want to get notoriety, when it comes to it, that's free press. Like at the end of the day, you, that's free press. When we got top four international best hotel bar for Clive's, we got it back to back two years in a row. It was because we dropped money into Gain Angus here. We comped his hotel room and I took him out. And Jacob Bryars, we had John Kuru, we had Jim Romdale, we had um, a whole bunch of people through Clive's. And then when I opened Little Jumbo, I think five, six months after we opened, I did a Dead Rabbit pop up. And Sean and Jack came up from Dead Rabbit and did a, a pop up and a seminar. <laughs> So when these guys come to your bar, check it out. You've spent money or you've got a brand to spend money um, on the side, which rarely happens in Canada. Um, they automatically have that in their head then that they had a great time. They've had a great experience. They visited your town. They've gone to all the cocktail bars that are available in, in uh, Victoria. Oh, in your city, sorry. And then they can comfortably vote for you. So... Some people say that because Victoria is still the only city in Canada that's got a top four in, uh, at Tails, some people say that I bought, bought the vote or bought the nomination, and kind of technically I did. But I did it because I wanted to do a multifaceted event 
with multiple people from my general public, from my industry, and sort of building from there. We've got to get moving. We've got 20, 13 slides left and half an hour to do it. Um, so staff training. And then we start talking about, like, so we're in, our, in the midsection. We're probably two or three years into, like, rolling with the cocktail culture and, and building on this. Diversification of your list. You can still you start doing more twists from classics, classic variations. Uh, do a flight of cocktails. So you might do a Negroni family flight. So Negroni, Old Pal, um, and Boulevardier, stuff like that. To see, keep pushing your, uh, your menu for your clientele. Um, and still has to go back over and over and over again and uh, have these bartenders come to you with their own cocktails. But as a bar manager or as an owner, um, for me, consulting now, um, I have a very structured way that I want cocktails brought to me. Um, I have a flow chart, which I should have probably slid into this, into this slideshow, but I have a flow chart so that the bartender actually physically has to write down his train of thought when it came to creating this cocktail before he shows, like as he shows me the cocktail. It has to be written down so that I can see how he created it and how he's trying to thought it. It takes out a lot of um, uh, trial and error because they've thought it through and thought through every ingredient before putting it together and giving it to me. So for you guys, um, Oren, uh, unnoticeable. Yeah. You're try you're, you tried to do a bar show this year, yeah? We tried and we failed miserably because we couldn't get the importers or the bars to work together. Uh, sorry, is that your mic? I think so. Still OK. Um, the one thing that's very unnoticeable yet in Tel Aviv is international bar shows. For example, when it comes to Tales of the Cocktail, we've counted a total of five Israeli bartenders to ever attend, two of which are in this room. Uh, that's that. Uh, never mind Tales of the Cocktail. New Orleans is about 30 hours flight. If we're talking about uh, uh, other shows like uh, Bar Convent Berlin or Athens Bar Show, which are very big, very famous, they draw a lot of attention, you wouldn't find a single Israeli bartender there. Uh, the, the Israeli bar owners, the Israeli bartenders aren't at a stage where they go to international shows. They don't taste things, they don't try things. We're not there yet. Uh, what we are trying to do in terms of, of staff training, we've opened our own staff trainings to the general public and to other bartenders. We're trying to attract them. Uh, we, 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 we have our own academy where we go through certain theoretical stuff or professional issues with our staff and we'd, we'd spread it out uh, 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 to everybody. We try to be as active as we can in international shows. I try myself to be in as many international shows as I can. I send my partners there. Uh, one of my partners is an apprentice this year. I'm very proud of her. Uh, we do an exchange program trying to attract international bartenders. We're bartenders. We're not talking uh, uh, seminar givers. Just, just a bartender. Come in, work behind the bar for a couple of days, get paid for it. We'll, we'll sort you out with a flight and the hotel and whatever. Uh, we keep several different kinds of menus to try and attract different kinds of uh, uh, cocktail aficionados. So you have the, the fast menu, you've all seen one of those. We do a black menu that's got like something like a, a spicier or more complex, bitter kind of drink. So you wouldn't want to normally serve other people. We try to, to hit the staff training and the general training in as many points as we can. So this is a slide uh, talking about community training. Come up with interesting ideas on how to get, like, your one for the, the vans to Seattle or Portland, that sort of thing is awesome. But um, this is a picture of our uh, bartender boot camp. So this is something that we started doing um, about six or seven months ago. So once a month, we all get together, and uh, we do a sponsored, like, one of the reps will come in with one of their products. We'll taste through it. They'll talk about it. Um, but then we draw a names out of a, a hat, 
and three bartenders will compete in a black box competition using that product. And then two bartenders will get put to the side and they'll get trained on how to judge. So cocktail competitions um, are quite big in, uh, in BC and uh, one of our uh, the older bartenders, uh, Simon, in uh, Victoria, he's the guy who created the judging sheet that the Canadian Professional Bartenders Association uses for all cocktail competitions. And so what we're doing is we're actually training the bartenders on what judges should be looking for when they're judging, even though they may not be maybe five or six years away from judging a cocktail competition themselves. So three bartenders do a black box, two bartenders judge. We have a whole lot of fun and enjoy it. And uh, it's a way that more bartenders uh, that aren't working in the cocktail bars that we already exist are sort of sliding into these bartender boot camps to see what is going on. And then our cocktail competitions have taken things to a level um, that is insane. The last one was, uh, was Negroni Week, the last one, Negroni Week was the last one. And we had a guy dress up as uh, Cupid and uh, give love notes to everybody. We had um, a guy do a two and a half minute guitar solo because his, um, his cocktail was rock themed. And then we had one guy um, there was a photo earlier of uh, uh, one of the bartenders called Brian. He's been winning all the cocktail competitions lately, like all of them in Vancouver, Victoria, everywhere. And we had one of the youngsters, well, he's not young anymore, but he, one of the youngsters got up and roasted him for eight minutes while he was making his cocktail. And like just, just everybody was cacking themselves laughing. But more training, more sharing, getting more bartenders involved. Because this brings it to small cities, pros and cons when it comes to business. When you only have three cocktail bars or five cocktail bars or 20 cocktail bars, in a, in a city, people get a bit intimidated by, by cocktails. They don't want to go to those cocktail bars because they're, they're intimidating. They're a little expensive or uh, it's, they, they, they're viewed as pretentious. Um, so if you get more bartenders involved doing elevated cocktails in, say, a beer bar or a pub or a steak restaurant, and you're touching more of the mainstream clientele, then those clientele are like, oh, this old fashioned is not douchey. I'll, I feel comfortable going to a cocktail bar now. So you gain, when you're doing more community training and gain more bartenders in, involved, you definitely gain way more uh, consumers involved peripherally. Do you have anything for that? Yeah. Oh, you both? Yeah, go ahead. Knock yourselves out. Um, one of the things that we found out works wonderfully well, uh, we started consulting other places as a bar, not as a person. As a bar, we started consulting other places. Each bartender would actually take responsibility of one place and would escort the place, the bartenders, train them, help them. The menu we'd built together, uh, we've sort of shift the French 57 into a sort of, like the back rooms now, like a fully functional uh, uh, factory making cocktail ingredients for those places. So it's not just the one thing, there you go, that's your menu, enjoy. It's actual escorting them on the way to having a more interesting uh, uh, cocktail menu, cocktail program, cocktail training. And then you have a lot of ambassadors for your culture, for your uh, uh, standards when it comes to cocktails. And suddenly a lot of people are saving drinks that you'd be happy to get. Um, which, you know, is, is great for, uh, you know, uh, to be able to bring in big names and, and have those kinds of events and those contests. But, you know, being from a really small town like mine, um, even the bartenders I work with and know around the community are like tales of the cocktail. So you go and party with a bunch of bartenders in New Orleans. That sounds great. Um, uh, they don't understand, you know, the t-shirts that says we're not drinking, we're learning, uh, which we actually are. Um, 
Oh, and hope so. Yeah. We're, we're, people are going to be asking for refunds, <laughs> man. Um, but the point is, is you know, most of the people in my community don't know what this event is, don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, but creating that uh, community, you know, a, a smaller version of this within your own community as possible. Um, they don't know who Angus Winchester is. If I brought him into Olympia, I wouldn't necessarily get a big crowd because they don't know that. But creating those small events, small contests, um, bar trainings, uh, community trainings, um, doing things like that, educating your community on your own um, is going to help your community as a whole and build up to a place where they're like, oh, yeah, let's go see Angus talk if he comes through on his way between Portland and Seattle. Or, you know, um, or we'll want to go to that event in a big city with you and, and, and check out a bar training. Um, but it's about creating that community yourself, and it's a lot of hard work, and it takes a lot of time and patience, but it's worth it. So now we get to the, 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 the finality of everything. Small city pros and cons. The pros always knowing guests by name, having a good family, well, a good family community. Um, it's very much easier to build long-term loyalty when uh, uh, a bartender Give, go, does a pop-up or something like that, which we've done a couple of times, um, people come because they're loyal to a certain person and a certain brand that uh, works. Um, you can't stop doing what you're doing, unfortunately. You've always got to be like touching tables, kissing babies. Um, but uh, what are your pros for, is Olympia, the pro for Olympia is that you've got a small enough community? Right, well, yeah, and, and people get to know who you are and want to come see you and want to, um, and, and, want to come get drinks uh, from you because they know that you're, you and your establishment are the place to go. Um, but you'll, uh, the disadvantage of that is something I experienced more recently switching to a, to a new establishment. Um, you can, uh, there's a sense of betrayal. Um, you know, you've gone, you've built up this, uh, this business and helped create this community and brought them in and then, you know, you want to, like for me it was a matter of moving into another outlying community and having a new opportunity to, uh, to share what I know with, with, with another community. And, um, but uh, the ownership of the establishment I was working at did, didn't see it as me going out and sharing my knowledge and doing things. They, they saw it as, uh, as a betrayal of them and their establishment, which it was never intended to be. So, but by helping to create uh, other bartenders within your establishment that can do the things that you can do, you won't get as much of that and you can, you can uh, move on and do things. And that brings us to the cons because I know uh, Oren has a few cons as well. Lack of media is a big one. When you do a big, if you open a bar in a big city, nine times out of ten you're going to have 25 journalists on your doorstep ready to review you before it even happens or after you open. And then in a small city you might have two. And then also, nine times out of ten, you've got to pay for them to come in because they want free dinner and free drinks and that sort of thing, which is the too much pay to play. Um, tourism bodies, I think, in small cities are pretty bad for this. Um, if you don't pay them your usual like fee to get to be part of the, the, the tourism body, um, they won't bring journalists in. So it, it gets a little bit uh, too much like that. And then uh, scenism. So as soon as a new cocktail bar opens, you lose a big chunk I think, I think that's a big city problem as well. And then Oren was saying yesterday that um, a lot of the times the, uh, the media are shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't have any 
reporters writing about liquor, cocktails, bars in any manner of way. So you kind of try to find areas where they are writing about and are sort of relevant. You, you'd, you'd appear in uh, uh, touring or tracking, going out. Uh, you'd, you'd try lifestyle, you'd try fashion, you'd try anything that you can hit on, but to get somebody to come to your bar and experience it and then write about it, you kind of have to, you pay to play. He doesn't pay for whatever he eats and drinks and sometimes you even pay to him in order to, to, to write about it. And for the most part, he'd write something that he wouldn't really understand or re wouldn't really uh, uh, research on. A lot of times they'd write something they think is very good but would actually hurt business. Yeah, he drinks an old pal and says it's an old buddy. <laughs> I really enjoyed my old buddy when I went there. Yeah. <laughs> so, the end. So that's Bob. Yeah, he works in a cocktail bar. There's not too many beards in this room. I went to Calgary and I used this photo and uh, sort of being like a, a mocking of beards and hipsters and stuff, except the whole room had beards. And uh, I didn't get the usual response I get out of the sort of fun joke that I'm trying to make, Matt Jones. Um, <laughs> I was trying to find, I actually typed in bartender with beard and tattoos. It was actually what I Googled to try and find that picture. So, the end is, Google's a wonderful thing. The, yes, the end is yet to be written. Um, you might get the book deals, the world travel, your own place, um, brand ambassadorship, um, but it's yet to be done. Um, nothing in the, like you, I can be like really philosophical and say nothing in this world is going to be given to you. Um, but in a small city, like I said, you've got to work twice as hard to prove your half as good. I was lucky enough, I got an article written about me and the, a publisher that was local Facebooked me and asked me if I wanted to come in for a meeting for my book deal. Um, as I said, working hard doesn't stop. Be your biggest competitor, your critic, your motivator. No one else will be. Um, if, at, when you start out, um, and I'm going to come back to Victoria with Solomon's. Solomon's was way ahead of its time. Um, for him to have a $10 cocktail on the menu, people were pissed. But now, um, in the market, you've got franchise restaurants charging 12, 13, 14 bucks. Earl's and Keg and all those sort of places. And you're like, five, six years ago, it was insane to even think about it. Now, I'm going to finish up with uh, some quotes from my mom and my dad. So, my dad always said, whatever you do, be the very best at it. And my mom always used to say, regardless of how good you are, there's always someone out there that's going to be better than you. So, <laughs> probably why I have a, a tick and have lots of therapy. Um, <laughs> Just compete against myself all the time. So I am going to put this up on SlideShare. I do apologize. I haven't done that already. I have been a little busy getting drunk. Um, but it will be up on SlideShare. Uh, my email address is there. Please take it down. If you have any questions, I will not feel like you're stalking me if you email them to me. Um, all the tags, please uh, use the hashtag SmallCityCocktails. I highly doubt that will trend past Pokemon Go, but here, here's hoping. Um, and then again, if you want to uh, tweet or Facebook us, uh, Instagram, knock yourself out. And oh, I did that. It's not French 75. At the very moment, it's French 57. I do apologize. I'm going to do a shameless plug. Um, buy my book. Keep me in the lifestyle I've become accustomed to. I, <laughs> I get 25 cents a copy. Yep. Um, and then thank you. Thank you to our sponsors, Dre and Jim and Fennet Bronca. Thank you to the Caps. Um, huge thing to the Caps, actually. Caps.
Huge thank to uh, my fellow speakers, Oren and Bradford. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I'm going to have Brendo's Fernet. And thanks to Brendo. Thanks, Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, if you're listening, whatever platform you're on, give me a good rating, subscribe, listen along. Uh, I'm going to keep going. I really enjoy sitting down with people and learning where they're from, what they did, and how they got to where they were. So if you love it, give me a good five stars. If you don't, give me one and I'll try harder. <laughs>